Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we're thrilled to bring back our LP roundtable with Chris Duvos of Ahoy Capital, Beezer Clarkson of Sapphire Partners, and Guy Perlmuter of Grids Capital. The last time we all got together on the pod was at the very tail end of the cycle two years ago, where we all tried to make sense of the venture market. Of course, a lot has changed since then, and this time we spoke about the impact of the downturn on emerging managers, what emerging managers can do to navigate this fundraising market, and the role of secondaries. This is always a fun group to have on, given their knowledge and transparency about venture from the LP lens. We really hope you enjoyed the episode, so let's get right into it. This week's Venture Unlocked episode is brought to you by Juniper Square. Managing structured and unstructured data often means struggling to centralize information, build internal cohesion, and deliver a best-in-class experience for investors. Today, more than 1,800 fund managers rely on Juniper Square's end-to-end solutions for fundraising, investor management, and fund administration to manage more than 34,000 investment entities that span over 500,000 LPs and $1 trillion in investor equity. It's time to work with a partner who understands what venture and private equity firms need and get a single source of truth for all your fund and investor data. To learn more, go to junipersquare.com. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlocked are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Beezer, Chris, and Gee, great seeing you all, and thanks for uh, joining us today on a Saturday. Happy to be here. I was looking back at our last episode, which was October 19, 2021, so the height of all the craziness. In fact, we recorded on a Friday in September, and I remember starting off that conversation by posing the question of, complete the sentence, venture is blank today, and you all had different answers. It went from fascinating, interesting, confusing, and maybe that's the same of what we see right now. But why don't we start with that thought exercise with that sense? I'll start with you, Guy. Venture is blank today. What is it today? So I think venture is healing right now. This is for me the key, uh, the defining word for what we're, we're experiencing right now. We have been through a an incredible hyped up market. We can argue that some of that is still going on right now with specific pockets, but as a whole, I think we were we witnessed the boom of the VC industry, especially in 2021. And I think we're 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 living through the healing process of things getting a little more rational, if you will. And I think this is going to continue for for a little while longer. All right. So we're in healing. Chris, what do you think? You know, I think last time I said uh, something so generic, like interesting. This time I'm going to say venture is a tempestuous child, a petulant adolescent who by turns is calm and focused um, and afflicted with these bouts of um, madness and paranoia. Um, That's what it feels like now. It's been really interesting to watch the portfolio over the last, our, our own portfolio over the last 
year or so because we've got a bunch of companies that are just plugging away, well financed, you know, certainly had you know valuations that may prove in the fullness of time to be um, overwrought, but just building great businesses. And then there, the people are just like crawling and struggling and stressed about bridge raises and stuff like that. And it's, it's really kind of a tale of two cities. It's, a, it's, a, it's very different than, yeah, just saying interesting. And I, and I, and I like that. And we're going to dig into what, what you mean by tale of two cities a little bit later in this conversation. Beezer, what is your complete the uh, sense I love the fact that Guy made the thought that I had, which is venture is bumping along the bottom, a healthier, optimistic view with healing. But I think I'm going to bridge off of what Chris said to keep things spicy, because I think this is what I said last time that we were spicy. I think venture is an ecosystem that just loves a good hype cycle. And I'm going to leave it there. That is actually the most amazing answer because literally we're just like the biggest hype beasts. Like venture is just one big Mm -hmm. virtual hype house. Yes. Yes. And we just went through one of the biggest hype cycles that we've seen in a long time during 2020 and 21. And again, we talked last time in 2021, things were at the peak peak of that hype cycle. The last 18, 19 months have obviously changed. From my standpoint, I think we're healing. We're not healed yet. I think we're reaching that point of sobriety, but there's still folks out there that I don't think have completely adjusted to what candidly is the new normal. You know, as we think about venture, a lot of people put venture in this one big bucket, this monolith. You know, they don't make the distinction between someone like an insider or a tiger versus that first time pre-seed $20 million manager. Of course, these are very different type of investment vehicles with different risk returns. Let's maybe break down what's happening right now with each one of these things. So emerging managers is an area that all of us have spent a ton of time within our careers, looking at investing in supporting the train of the number of emerging managers. I mean, I lose count even at this point, but, you know, north of 2,500 have been formed since the GFC to now. Many of them may not now get to a fund two, fund three, fund four. Beezer, you had described something that I thought was really interesting, which is the survival rate of emerging managers going from a fund one all the way to a fund four. Maybe we can start with what did you see? And then how is that affecting now your outlook on many of the emerging managers that you might have backed as a fund one or fund two? Sure. So we try to create a pretty meaningful database of both our portfolio returns and then the industry as a whole. And so what we did is we looked at data from 1995 till 2014 of all original funds. So the core funds, right? Not your state uh, tacked on growth funds or overage funds or whatever that is, but the main core funds that become the real heart of a firm's fundraise. It's really shockingly, it's, I thought it was hard, but it's harder than I thought to get from a fund one to a fund four on average, your odds are 17%. And that's because there's so many initial funds that come out. And then it gets worse. If you want to get through to a fund eight, your odds are less than 10%. And again, this is because there's just so many more emerging managers. And by the time you get to a fund five or a fund four, even like the funnel is just winnowed down, there's still break points between them, but it's really, really hard. There's certain vintage jumps, which are harder than others. And fund one to fund two, I mean, I'm rounding, but it's on average 50% breakage. I don't think people realize that. And I don't think, and again, because the last couple of years may have had a different texture to it. And there are a lot more VCs investing as LPs through programs and things like that. That wasn't true back in the old, in the older days. 
So I think the getting to fund one to fund two might look a little bit different now, but I think what it's speaking to is the jump to institutionalizing. And I just think a lot of managers, there, there's not a lot of places to go to get education on this, but I think they underappreciate what it takes to attract institutional capital because it's not just your top line. And here's my three companies that I got 50 K into. It's much more than that because an institutional LP is looking for something else. And it could be that you just want to wait to institutionalize till fund three, but you see these breakpoints, And I think in the beginning, it speaks to the ability to attract capital. I think later it speaks to the ability to manage your firm and make good investments, but I'll stop there. I, I think those are the things we see in the industry. And we, we apply that thinking to when we're looking at funds is what is their understanding of the venture world as well as their picking ability. There's an interesting analogy here, right? So if you think about, you know, seed stage companies going to a series A, going to a series B, going to a series C, historically, that's the, the percentages or roughly the percentages, you know, half of the series seed companies don't necessarily make it to an A. And then you have attrition from the A to the B and B to the C. And it's usually due to traction. In funds, it's hard to show traction, particularly within a two-year time frame, which many of these funds are raising, maybe even 18 months. How much of that attrition from fund one to fund two is really driven by the fact that retail or family office capital might have been dried up, so the non-institutional capital, versus many of these folks just realizing that venture isn't what they thought it would be, and the opportunity cost of doing other things is so high. How do you all see that? You know, that's a surprising number. 50% don't make it to a fund two. You know, let me take a crack at that. And by the way, you know, this this is a really hard question to answer with my adult onset ADD because I've got like 19 different uh, things in my head. But a lot of it is, you know, I'm thinking back to when I started doing this stuff in, in 2001 and we had just seen this like, you know, it's like the, the dying out of the dinosaurs or actually they weren't dinosaurs. They were the, the, the little emerging managers that had been raised in 99 and 00. And it, this feels like, you know, a similar time, but a neuron that's firing as, as you say this, Samir, and earlier you said, you know, getting people adjusted to the new normal, you know, the new normal is actually the old normal. This is, we, we, really have this recency bias, the period, you know, 1990, like late 1996, to early 2021 was like really, really unusual. And I think the world feels a little bit more like the normal world of like 2012 or 2006, you know, or 1995. It just, you know, because the recency bias, it, it just feels different. But, but back to the, the topic, you know, one thing that's, I think a lot about the difference between building a company and building a venture fund, somebody, I think it was Stuart Alsop once said, the advice he gives every entrepreneur is he says, look, you have a number of shots on goal to build intergenerational wealth. Think about how old you are now. Think about when you want to retire. You know, how many years is that? Divide that by four, because that's a vesting period. He's like, that's how many shots you have on goal, different opportunities to, to build intergenerational wealth. And you start a company, the company goes on and raises an A or not, you pack it up, you go and you start the next thing. What people fail to realize, and I think a lot of the dilettantes who came in, the tourists, what, what have you, came into the business, don't realize is the average venture fund lasts twice as long as the average American marriage. Think about the worst relationship you had in high school, and you have to deal with that person for, for the next 14 years. That's really daunting. So if you're, you're a tech bro coming out of, you know, programmer coming out of, you know, you're a PM or, or biz dev at, you know, Hotco, and you raised a $20 million fund, that thing is, and you're 30 years old, you're saddled with that thing until you're 45. People sometimes get caught up in it and, and raising a fund became like the thing to do. 
people think you're moving up the capital stack. You're actually like moving down in some bizarre ways. But it became the thing to do, you know, the way like law school is the thing to do for every humanities major coming out of it. It's just like the thing to do because we don't know what else to do. And, you know, like go out and build. Don't, don't raise a fund for crying out loud. All right, off rant. One maybe counterpoint that, you know, some people say is that having more funders come in with different backgrounds was actually a net positive for the industry, particularly at the seed stage, because most of these emerging managers are not coming in raising $600 million doing Series A, Series B investing, but it's a 10, 20, $30 million fund. And the capital that was brought in is actually a good thing for the environment. You know, just maybe going back to your your point, Chris, of, you know, yeah, we've seen these a lot of atrophy. Do you view the you know, the injection of so many emerging managers as a net positive? Or do you feel like the environment where you start to weed, you know, folks out and maybe the number of funders at the early stage decreases over time is the healthier balance for the ecosystem? For me, it actually fundamentally comes down to the question is, and by the way, when you say, you know, these managers coming in, is that a good thing? My answer to that is for whom? There's all kinds of different constituencies and and the three of us on the LP side, or all of us, have a very particular set of interests that are governed more by the world of Warren Buffett than they are by the world of Steve Jobs. But that's a whole nother story. But what I'd ask is, for me, the crux of it is like, is entrepreneurship an infinitely renewable resource? Is there like infinite demand for entrepreneurship? I have this debate with people here in in the Valley all the time. If there were an infinite number of dollars available, would we see meaningful differences in the profits that people could make or the good that we could do in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And I actually think it's not because we live in in a world where there's a rate limiting step, which is like what happens to these companies? They have to go somewhere. They have to be acquired. They have to go public. Like something has to happen to these companies for them to like survive um, long term. I do believe that entrepreneurship generally is an infinitely renewable resource, but not venture backed entrepreneurship, which has a very different set of, of hurdles and expectations. All right, I'm going to take the side of, yes, we believe there's always room for new innovation and thought, which is a bit of a threading the needle in between. And I would say in part of the research we were doing, because one of the questions I wanted to answer, because everyone's like, oh, downturns are the best time to raise a fund. Turns out legendary funds, and we define legendary as the ones out of any vintage that have survived the longest to raise the most number of funds and are still a going concern because sometimes you can raise the most number of funds, but there's not they're not going forward, which is a different conversation. This will not really surprise you three folks because you're well in tune to the industry. But no, no, amazing funds have come out of good times and bad times. Again, not a surprise, but we we sort of accept that as reality and say great, which means you should always be in the market and you should always have room for emerging managers in your portfolio. So we do a combo. And to the Samir, thank you for offering to let me just say this. So this is why we've taken over the emerging manager program for Calsters, and we're really excited about that. But we really, we've long believed in the importance of having it as part of our portfolio. So now we get to do it on behalf of the teachers, pensions, and other educators of California. Go team. That's fantastic. By the way, as a resident of California, and my daughter is actually, uh, she just started her first year teaching in inner city San Jose. Well, I feel the responsibility of managing her pension. So <laughs> keep me keep me in, informed and in line. <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's such an uh, exciting development. It's certainly one that bodes well for the emerging manager mandate. You, you said something that LPs should have emerging managers as part of their investing profile, and and I want to dig into that. All of us, while we agree with it, 
you know, it probably poses the question of why. If you look at some of the more established firms, right, you can get often two to three eggs. You know, you don't take the same risk. Why is it important? Maybe, Guy, you can maybe mention, because you invest in funds of all sizes and stages. Why do you have emerging managers as part of your investing thesis? The, the crux of the matter when it comes to emerging managers has to do with supply and demand, like so many other aspects of our business. And what we have seen uh, over the past 24, maybe 36 months, is that the, the, the environment was ripe for people claiming uh, any sort of special talent and trying to raise money and actually being able to do that, which for me was mind-blowing because the actual process of becoming a portfolio manager, being able to steward capital for, for other people, choose companies, uh, allocate accordingly, schedule your follow-ons, make sure that you have the mindset as as this is, as Chris said, this is like a decade-long process at least. It blows my mind that it became so easy for so many people with very little to show for to convince their potential LPs, this is why I am a good bet. But the fact of the matter is that at any given point in time, regardless of uh, the point in the cycle where you're at, and I think we're definitely going to be talking cycles here at some point, there is talent, true talent, real talent, that is going to take uh, their first stab at their first fund, right? And and for us, I think it's incredibly important that we are always uh, of an open mind and able to detect, okay, who within this group of people has a shot at becoming a great talent, a great new dynasty, if you will. And and when it comes to the way we approach this is we are very much into first-time funds because we feel that this is the best opportunity for you to build a relationship with, with the GP and with the franchise because you are there to support them from, from day one. But we are not that excited about first-time portfolio managers, because I think that the, the, the jump from being an analyst or being a, a, a associate or a principal or a junior partner or a full-fledged PM is, is not a process that happens over, overnight, right? I mean, I, I, I tease some of my LPs that, you know, if you drive by Meta's door or Microsoft door, that doesn't automatically make you a potential portfolio manager just because you drove by their door, right? And I feel that over the last couple of years, that's what happened, right? Well, I drove by, you know, University Avenue a couple of times, so I probably can run a portfolio. So what we try to do is when we look at those emerging managers or those new kids on the block, if you will, we're going to take a double click and see, okay, what does this person bring to the table? Did they work at, you know, a Sand Hill Road icon before? Did they do any sort of company building before? Have they had any experience with running people's money before? And this is for us a big, big part of our, uh, our thought process. And this is, this is what makes us really proud that every single fund one that we started backing in our first fund, we were able to kind of re-up in the following vintages because these were the right calls. These were the right bets. And what I'm seeing now is that the threshold for LPs to now be even bothered about a first-time fund has really, really uh, exploded, which 
had to be the uh, usual way for us to do things before the, the, the boom cycle began. Hopefully now this is, as Chris said, this is becoming, this is getting back to the normal uh, way of dealing with venture. So now we see uh, uh, emerging managers, but they know that they have to come in with more than just a couple of great uh, or cool ideas they have or views they have on the industry. It have to come with, you know, the proper backing, the proper credentials, the proper experience. And, 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 and I think that for us to stick to our principles on what we consider, you know, the bare minimum uh, prerequisites for a manager to come into our portfolio has served us really well over, over this, this interesting period of time. Let's just define emerging managers for a second for a lot of the folks, because I think it's still a little bit ambiguous. But, you know, typically the way we've looked at it, and maybe a lot of other folks is, you know, fund one, two, three, typically are viewed that. And the difference between a first-time fund and a first-time manager, a first-time manager is somebody that's never run somebody's money, where a first-time fund could be somebody spinning out of a, a large shop. Given the fact that all of you run fund-to-fund vehicles, you have limited shots at goal. You're not going to do a thousand different managers. You're doing in a portfolio, 10, 15, maybe 20 at the extent. Maybe there's a few more or strategies that you run. But ultimately, if you're backing at fund one to decrease and mitigate the risk of it not getting to fund two, you don't want to spend a lot of time investing in a fund one if you don't feel like it's going to be a fund two, fund three, fund four type of long-term franchise. It speaks to being institutional. So is it saying that the the most important criteria is having a, some level of track record, or at least showing that you have been a fiduciary? Or are there other things that fundamentally you look at for somebody to be deemed institutional from the beginning? For me, the, the, the bare minimum requirement for me to start looking at them is that they have had some level of fiduciary experience that they have touched other people's money before they know the responsibility to understand how serious this is, that this is not monopoly uh, money, right? This is not make believe money. This is, this is a serious commitment that you have to have with, with your LPs and with, uh, with the companies you're, you're supposed to back. So this is like the first, the very first thing we'll look at. And then everything else in our due diligence process uh, stems from that. But uh, if there's not, not a previous experience at some level as a junior, even as a very junior person at some other shop, then it's a no-go where we're not going to, you know, start a conversation. Chris, maybe you can speak to this. I, you know, I know you've done a lot of first-time funds and some of them have been started by people that didn't have this long apprenticeship investing other people's money. What's your view? And do you have a, a counter to what Key said? It's funny because as an aside, and I, I'm probably going to regret saying this because my inbox is going to fill up, fill up, but I, I was really excited about, you know, kind of fund ones in the kind of, you know, really going back to 2006, 2005, but, but really kind of, especially through like 2016, 2017. And then in 2018, in our portfolios, we took like a very conscious decision to pivot towards quote unquote grownups. I've never said this out loud. And I say this with all the love, like I literally just like pilfered Beezer's playbook. Beezer, I think does a lot of great investing in grownups. And I was like, how can I be more like Beezer? And so did a bunch of that. And I actually feel like that phase is coming to an end. we got this great portfolio. I love our, our grownups. But as I look ahead to 2024 and beyond, I actually am thinking about jettisoning. I'm basically going to like burn the house down and start new. In fact, um, you know, just just only investing in funds three or younger. Basically, what we're looking for is um, 
is repeatability, right? Like actually, if I have to boil it down, I want people to have experience building something and maybe we index a little bit less than on, and I think this is what you're getting at, uh, index a little bit less on actually prior investing experience, but I need to have investing role models. I spent a lot of, you know, and maybe this is like arrogant of me, but I've taken on some projects where we've taken people who have maybe a little bit less investing experience and I've actually like, tried to mentor them really hard. So like, what is their unfair advantage they have that's going to like re- lead to like repeatable outcomes? And to, you know, to what extent can I be like a little bit helpful? In some cases, these guys weren't really raw investors per se, but like Beezer and I like spent half of 2012 and 2013 aggressively mentoring in air quotes you know, one, one particular set of GPs. And, you know, I think that helped a little bit, you know, and sometimes it works, but sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. But for me, ultimately, I believe that there are lots of different sources of unfair advantage, you know, for me, like leveraging ecosystems is my watchword. So we've invested in, you know, a handful of groups that are like tied to research institutions that have like a first look at things that are coming out, um, you know, different inventions and innovations. And I'm more than happy to take on, you know, the, the load of like, okay, the next three months, I'm going to spend talk to these folks on the phone every day or every other day about like portfolio construction and why you shouldn't use safes, why you should try, try price rounds. And it's actually like exhausting, but we run a really concentrated portfolio. We do maybe two or three managers a year, actually two to four, let's call it for, for us. That's what makes that all work. Can I ask a follow-up question? How do you mentor or guide when your point of your perspective is different from the other LPs around the table? Because I find that I'll roll up and I'll, have an opinion on fund size or something. And there's always some other LP who has the other 180 degrees. And it's not that they're just choosing to be different, like for their system that works for them. And then the GP's in the middle of it. And no one knows who's right until a decade from now when a million different things could have occurred. So on that input side, because we, we, we're having this experience right now with somebody and I was like, oh, we're going to have a really different response than the other LP's. And everyone's Everyone's authentically giving their best advice, but it's different. That, by the way, is the most savage subtweet <laughs> that I've ever heard. Because <laughs> I know I, you may be talking about somebody completely different, but I'm I'm thinking back to back to 2012, 2013. Oh, I think that happened to me yesterday. So so no, yeah. but but same thing. But Samir, this is what happens on the Saturday morning podcast recording. Apparently, we get um, unconscious savage subtweets. <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell you though that I remember something that like really you know one of my formative experiences was there's a brand name Sandhill Road Fund that's still around and really quite successful. And back in 2002, they were trying to push an amendment, and I was at you know at Princeton's endowment. They called me up. They said, "Well, look, everybody signed the everybody on the advisory board has signed this amendment." And I think LPs, uh, GPs don't understand how much LPs talk. So the first thing I do is I call up Peter Dolan and he goes, hey, Duvos, what's going on? And then I call up Tim Sullivan. He's like, hey, Duvos, how's it going? And literally, by the time I was done with all my calls, I found out that the GP was completely full of shit. So I think, by the way, Beezer, your interpretation that the poor GP is in the middle, surrounded by all this conflicting information, that is the most like generous interpretation in the world. Because I will tell you, 80% of GPs are commercial animals who just want to get bigger, bigger, bigger bigger, bigger, you know, as Walt Whitman would say, ever increase and will listen to whatever, uh, whatever advice fits that bill. Well, can I tell you on that point, I know this is total regression, but this GP called me and they're, they're running the same size fund. I mean, maybe it flexes up five or 10 million, but which relatively speaking is, you know, semi-inconsequential. 
they're being shamed. And I'm calling this out because I think it's just ridiculous. Other GPs were like, basically like, what's wrong with you for not raising more money? And I was like, well, they're going to have a really easy one and done fundraise. If they do well, they're going to hit the ball out of the park, or they could try to double or triple their fund size and it's going to screw up their portfolio strategy. But yes, for one fund cycle, they'll have more management fees. But other GPs were giving them pressure. Like you're not really serious about this business if you're not radically increasing your fund size. I will tell you, there is a another Sandhill Road firm where once they used to be a 20 carry and they went to a 30 carry in 2006 or seven or eight. And I asked the GP who was like a multiple Midas list, you know, guy, I, I said, why, why, why did you take now to raise your carry? And he says, well, because at the, I was having dinner with a bunch of, bunch of other GPs at the circus club over here in Benlo, which is a very fancy place. And, and they were making fun of me that our carry was only 30, 20%. And I'm like, literally, that that's why you're, and you're telling me that? Like, that's shocking, number one. I mean, it's it's just mind-boggling. Number two, I will tell you that it's also the lawyers. It's like, we're boiling frogs. We're constantly boiling frogs. And I remember, I, I will name names. But I think we're the frog. We're the frog, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> like, I'll name names. Like, I remember when First Round was raising their first institutional fund, and Josh and I were sitting down because I was, like, helping with the docs and, and introducing to a bunch of people. And he said, well, here's here's term sheet. They say that we should do this because Duvos is your lead investor, and he just signed up for this term sheet on Fund X. And if he's okay with it there, he should be okay. And I'm like, Josh, Fund X has six companies that by the way today are in the nasdaq 100 and they've been around for 20 years and you're like literally this is your first go around and i love you madly but my god can we start with a vanilla term sheet for christ's sake and it, and literally like i was like why is he being such a hard ass i'm like because you're a first time institutional fund for crying out loud and i don't begrudge people making money this is america god bless it but for crying out loud wait a second are you saying that general counsel doesn't make the distinction between funds or companies and they <laughs> You now you're bringing back some PTSD from my banking days when I used to see the uh, the red lines on all the, uh, the the deals that we did. One thing that just kind of sparked in my head when you were talking, Chris, around thinking about fund sizes, carry, and and some of the crazy ways things are translated then into what we see bigger fund sizes are often based on no rational or logical reason outside of more fees or pressures by LPs to raise their fund sizes so they can park more money. And I had a conversation with somebody yesterday, great GP, been around for, you know, 20 plus years, you know, one of the best I think out there. And we were just talking about institutional capital and raising institutional capital. And he's like, look, we're going to do things our way. He's like, I think the most important thing uh, of being a good GP and a fiduciary capital is just knowing who you are and what game you're playing. You know, we started talking about the concept of sourcing, picking and winning. He's like, look, even us, we can't really draw OKRs around picking because by definition, it takes a long time to determine if we're any good. So it's all, all about OKRs around sourcing and winning. Also, the thought about like, well, that needs to also fit within the fund model or the fund size model because fund size is your business model. And, and I thought that was really smart. And so many people have been pushed out of their comfort zones because of these externalities, like LPs saying do more, GPs, the the council. And now you have this whole collection of funds who are now trying to raise based on the way things they did during the hot period and are now having a really tough time because the market's changed and it doesn't work. And so what are you seeing? I think, and this goes for both established and emerging funds, 
it's almost like that Series A company that raised at a $400 million pre with no revenue and now is going towards Series B now is stuck. What are you seeing for those people that are in this uncomfortable place of having to either dramatically decrease fund size, change terms, which isn't the easiest thing to do? I mean, we're seeing a recalibration. I think for some managers who are the people you were talking about, who are thoughtful and played their game and they've played it well, they're seeing a lot of interest. So we're definitely seeing LPs try to concentrate. So be that be that as it may, we're also seeing a lot of funds like companies who have waited to fundraise this year and are now going to come back to market theoretically Q4, Q1. I I wish everyone the best because it it's... It, I think the industry can expand and d- drive good innovation. There's no limit on the number of excellent companies we can have. I think I'll take the other side of Chris's comment. They should all be able to grow an IPO, but they won't. I don't know, man. I think if the macro stays where it is, we could have another six to nine months of a bit of a struggle bus in getting funds raised if you don't really like, swing down this narrow fairway of what LPs are looking for right now, be that as it defined. But you're going to see large funds like have their size. You were already seeing them, but they already were so big to start with. You know, if you were raising three billion and now you have to raise one point five, you're not out of business. You still have a lot of capital. There's only so long you can go out to you can be in the fundraising market if you don't have a lot of personal capital. And so we, I think, people are going to have to make decisions on if they want to be a venture capitalist or not, or join a program or merge up. And we've seen it before. We'll see it again. I just think there's a lot of numbers out there that. To your point, this is a different reality. And to institutionalize, it's going to be a tougher, tougher set. But I'm also going to throw the middle of the fairway in the, into the chopper too. The if you didn't have T- DPI before and you're trying to create it now, I don't know how much patience LPs will have. It's not that it won't be appreciated if it's feels like an authentic DPI, but this goes to one of the questions you had asked, Samir. So I'm going to open the door and then let my smarter colleagues finish it, which is we are seeing a lot of secondary activity. But if it's secondaries where you could have sold it or share the stock at $10, and now you're getting a dollar. An LP that knows the market is going to know the difference. Segwaying into what I think is a really interesting topic is, is DPI. Of course, at the end of the day, DPI is what matters. And DPI, coupled with, of course, a time period that makes sense where you can actually generate the right type of net IR alongside it. During 2020 and 21, we saw so much liquidity. SPACs, M&As, in fact, 2021 was one of the biggest years of liquidity we've ever seen. So super, super cycle. Many managers didn't take advantage of selling in those huge private rounds that Tiger or Co2 or D1 or whoever, name your big crossover fund led. And in many cases, actually held on to public stock after an IPO. How do you then think about managers when you're looking at them today and looking at past DPI? Because to a certain degree, DPI is one of those things you want. But as a manager and as an LP and a manager, you're ultimately sometimes a prisoner of when that company goes public or there's a liquidity event stripe and Roblox are good examples of that. What are you looking for in terms of looking at past performance on DPI? Is it decision making? And how do you think about secondaries overall? Is that something that should be part of a unique segment of a strat manager strategy go, going forward, given what we've seen? Well, I'm going to start by saying you can't onesie twosie your way to a three or five X fund. But that said, we do like to understand because your points are right on the money. You can't always engineer an exit, nor probably should you. But we do want to understand the thinking behind when they have opportunities, why and when they're choosing them. And how much of it is that formulaic versus having to decide 
incrementally because, and Fred Wilson talks about this a lot. So I want to give him credit. Having a process that you run all the time will just help you. And I actually think back in the day, I remember Mike Maples talking about this too. Like you, you don't overdo it in some markets. You don't underdo it in the others. Do you leave some money on the table? Yes. But overall, none of us can time the market. Or if you can, you should be in the public markets, not the private markets. It's really, really hard to, under, to, to make the bet. So we try to understand what the thinking is and then look at past behavior to understand how it played out, future potentially being different. We have a number of GPs telling us that they have now learned some hard lessons. So we'll see what the future holds. We're all about learning from past mistakes. We do the same thing. We post-mortem stuff. So that's my generous answer. Now, someone else can take the other side. No, I fully agree with that. And, um, and speaking of, of, of quantitatively observable measures or metrics, uh, we try to establish those all over our own portfolios because this will give us a little bit of a, uh, a protection against being either too optimistic, which personally has never happened to me, as my wife can tell you, uh, for you know 20 plus years, and also not being overly pessimistic. So we try to establish not only as we build our portfolios, you know, the limits, uh, risk limits for sector or geography or, or, or style or many other metrics that you can think of, but also when it comes to the tail end of a fund and you look at your exits, you start to establish some crude metrics or benchmarks on how much is enough, right? Because we live in a world where when we ri we're writing a success story, and all of us have done this fortunately a number of times, our instinct is to kind of let's ride it all the way into sunset, right? Let's wait until it's played out to its fullest. But it is an incredibly tough thing to do because once that company is into the public eye, it's listed, then it's not only about their entrepreneurs and their technology and their services. It's about a whole gamut of things that you have no control over. So we have established metrics when it comes to when are we going to leave a position? When are we going to close the position, take the money and return it to our investors or even make an in-kind distribution or whatever it is? that are very easy to measure. And that, again, gives us the ability to try to block out the noise. Uh, oh, are interest rates still going to rise? Because if they are, maybe there there's still something to be done here. Oh, no, we're now getting to a cycle where inflation is under control. And so everything should be you know, up and to the right. And, and there's no way you can try to avoid a 10x or a 15x in another year or two. So we try to avoid all that. This is something that is desirable when you talk to a manager in your in your due diligence or in your inter relationship with them to make sure that you know when are they going to pull the trigger or at least that you expect them to pull the trigger because everything that is too subjective is of course very dangerous in times like like this that we have just lived chris i'd love to hear maybe from you what you've seen as well around the notion of when do you let your winners ride and when do you take chips off the table and it does feel like the the markets have not only shifted where there's more secondary opportunity today. And I think on a go-forward basis, you know, with things like NASDAQ private markets and some of the other platforms out there, managers will have more ability. I think some of the stigma of selling early and, and having a bad signal probably should be put to bed because if you're a seed stage manager selling in a series D or E, what value are you providing at that point anyway? In fact, it's probably responsible to kind of change over the uh, shareholder to somebody that can add value. What is a good example of somebody that has a formula that actually makes sense. I mean, Fred has talked about it, Beezer, you mentioned, 
And they've done it many times. It's part of their DNA. But a lot of emerging managers didn't take money off the table. Maybe they're doing it now because they need to show DPI to raise that next fund. To me, that seems like a short-term Band-Aid versus having a formula. Going back to Chris, like what have you seen? It's funny because this has been an area... I mean, as far as like managing money goes, venture is like the most unsophisticated asset class in the world. I, I'd sit in my Monday meeting at, at Old Ivy and, you know, the hedge fund guy would be talking about, well, our portfolio has an Omega of this and an Epsilon of that, you know, all this stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, venture's going great. It's like, it's with the teams. It's good, good. But, you know, one thing that I think the venture guys can learn something from is is the buyout guy. And Hellman and Friedman actually does something really interesting. And, and obviously in venture, you have a little bit less control over this kind of stuff. But what they do is they basically look at their portfolio, I think, every six months, they re write everything. They say, what is like our go forward IR in each deal from today? And if that IRR doesn't meet their hurdle rate, then they start a sale process. And their viewpoint is like, we are not a holder. We're either a buyer or a seller. And I think a lot of people in venture are glad to be holders. And, and it's the dynamics of the industry are, are such that, that you've been rewarded for that. But the number of companies that I've seen go way, way, way up and way, way, way down has been been remarkable. You know, so many companies, I, like literally my mind, I've got like all these neurons popping. I could name like 16 company names, right? And by the way, even before the crazy valuation stuff. And, you know, and one company that, the one firm, and again, I, I hate to keep, you know, kind of flogging them because I'm the ultimate fanboy, but like the first round guys actually got really thoughtful about this. They, they, had a couple of companies that went, you know, went to the moon and came back. Like one, uh, one that I think of is like ModCloth or Fab, like back in the you know kind of you know 2010 2011 era. And they actually started getting really sophisticated about you know in kind of 2015 or 2016. They actually brought in somebody from Capital Group um, on the public market side to help them think about how public markets think about portfolio companies, how. In the public markets, they think about their, you know, kind of, you know, buy, sell, hold decisions. And it actually led them to a four-part um, constant re-underwriting process. And I spent a lot of time talking to them about this Hellman and Friedman thing I just I just described. I won't say what it is, though, because I think it's, like, actually trade secret. But they actually spend a lot of time thinking constantly about their winners and how um, how much juice is left and is the juice that's left worth the squeeze and whether or not they can take you know liquidity. I think as the stigma has gone down, and, and by the way, as as later investors have been more and more voracious for ownership, there are lots of opportunities, and I think everybody should be taking advantage where they can to put moolah in the kula. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, and and we and it's the same thing that we've been talking to to managers about. There is time to take chips off the table, and it's actually good portfolio management. If you're going to get a fund returner by selling seventy percent of your position, it it surprises me sometimes that within the private markets, people think everything just goes up and to the right, so valuations just keep creeping up. And in the public markets, things vacillate. We have down rounds every single day. In fact, people forget that Meta or Facebook at the time, you know, had a down round. And this is just part of how things have been normal, going back to your comment, Chris, earlier. What we've seen over the last decade plus has not actually been normal. And certainly what we saw from 18 to 2021 was completely anomalous and abnormal. One last thing I want to maybe touch on just to, in the interest of time on, on a Saturday here is thinking about when you are looking at managers, and there's so many managers that are going to be listening to this podcast and saying, okay, I, I want to do this. I want to institutional capital. And there's a lot of talk on LinkedIn and Twitter about 
how do you differentiate? And some of them are like, oh, you have to build a certain portfolio size or its own, no follow-on financing. And I've always looked at those things as on the margin. And ultimately, it comes down to, do you have some kind of asymmetric edge when it comes to sourcing and winning? I mean, picking, I'm not going to know. I'm going to put money behind you because I believe you're, you're going to be a smart picker in what you do. But it's this concept of GP business model fit. Fun size, does it make sense? Does the thesis map to your respective team strengths? And this is not for emerging managers only. It's for established as well. Because all of the decisions we make are ex-ante. We're not buying what they did in the past. We're really buying that as maybe a data point, but also looking at that repeatability. Maybe starting with Beezer, you brought this up earlier. What does it mean to make the, the jump across the chasm to being institutional? What are you exactly looking for if it's not Mark's? I think you said so many great parts of, I just want to underscore. I do think it's a mindset. I think it's about understanding that you are running a financial services business, which I know is super pedantic LP answer, but if you want to be a fiduciary of somebody else's capital, they will just feel better if they think that you understand me versus what we had in the last couple of years, where it was a lot of chasing people to take money who were like, I don't know, I'm personally very wealthy and I don't need to, but I'm so excited to join the game, which can be great, but it's not the same thing as having someone say, I, I mean, like we post on our website, what we're looking for in a deck. So we're like, we'll tell you. So please read it. Like, if you want to ask me for money, like spend two minutes looking at it. I, I mean, I guess it sounds picky you and I don't mean to, but it's about understanding the audience as well as them being able to answer these questions, which is to your point, how is your network different? or super powered or something about what you're going to have coming into the pipe. And then it's about your picking. But as you said, I can only understand why you picked today. We'll know how well the picking is later. Absolutely. And one thing that I think it's one of the, of the key uh, uh, flaws of the way uh, people in general, both GPs and LPs think about industry as a whole is that we live in a world, right? Venture is such an adverse selection type of asset class, right? We're always looking at things, uh, I think, in a way where, where, where the uh, stack uh, is probably against us. But the truth of the matter is that the great entrepreneurs, the, which is it's all that we care about, right? The great entrepreneurs with the drive, the idea, the edge. These entrepreneurs are the ones that at the end of the day are going to be able to make their choices and pick the GPs they want to work with, right? And I really believe that. And in that sense, I feel that for you to be a GP and to ask for money, I want to learn, understand on a very deep level why would you be the chosen one, right? Why are you Neo in the sense that we're all in the matrix and you're going to be able to attract all the great entrepreneurs into your orbit? And if you do that, if you're able to show me that, then I think uh, we're probably going to be able to build a very, very healthy relationship. Bring it home, Chris. <laughs> well, look, somewhere somebody must have published a blog post that said you have to be differentiated. Then all of a sudden, everybody started coming up with like their quote unquote differentiations. And some things are are 
differentiated in how much they suck, right? Differentiation can have a negative sign as much as well as a positive sign. So, you know, ultimately what we look for is sustainable competitive advantage. Um, you guys have articulated that far better than, than, um, than I could. People talk a lot of in startups about founder market fit. You know, I think about, you know, GP market fit, you know, Beezer, you mentioned Mark Maples or Mike Maples earlier. Mike always says your fun size is your strategy. And so understanding that alignment. And then the thing that I come to, which like, we don't actually talk about as much as we should. And this is, I think, where people make the leap to being institutional. David Swenson, you know, I was, I was lucky to take his class. So now I get to name drop him for, for the rest of my life. And David spent a lot, he, David was really dogmatic. And one of the things that he was super dogmatic about that people don't appreciate enough is alignment of interests. And alignment, you know, we use financial alignment as a proxy for that. But really, there's this whole like psychic alignment. And one thing that I found is a lot of people came into venture, especially like 90% of the angelist syndicates. And I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But I think people were just like, hey, this is a great way to leverage my dollars. I've got all this deal flow, I'm going to get some leverage. And it, you know, it became about other people's money, OPM, I think about that. Like when I'm sitting across from you, are you looking at me as, as the O my M is like your OPM. And by the way, if you say OPM fast enough, OPM, 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 it sounds like opium and it's a hell of a drug. Right. And a lot of people get just addicted to having a fund and just buying a lot of optionality and they're long the option. And I'm short the option. That is the thing I think of every single discussion I have with a GP. You're long that option and I'm short that option. How are we going to close that gap? you know, as much as possible. And a lot of that comes down to the, to the psychic alignment of interest. So I'm going to leave it there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way to, uh, to kind of tie all this together. Like always, there's so many things that we can unpack and have a conversation for. We'll leave it to, you know, part three. Hopefully we don't spend another two years. Maybe this is a little bit more recurring because there's so much LP fun stuff to talk about. But thanks for joining us on a Saturday. And no one can accuse any of you of not being in the arena as LP. So, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Let's go. Let's go. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Beezer, Chris, or Gabe, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.